Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. I don't have the full passage on the insert, although you'll have an outline there. Just on the insert, I placed the different divisions of the sons of Noah that are in focus here in Genesis 10. So you'll need to have Genesis 10 open to um, in your lap. It could be your electronic device or the Bible you have before you, the first book of the Bible, chapter 10. Uh, this is a sketch of the nations after the flood. You'll notice that Genesis has several of these listings of the generations, and it's uh, incredibly precise. This is not an exhaustive list, we can be sure, but it is, the quality of it is obvious as we read through it. Uh, this is the Word of God, and we can trust what is displayed here. And this is the story of what the world looked like nation-wise, at least in general, after the flood. Now, there's an episode that causes a division that you'll see already on display in chapter 10. That's explained in chapter 11. We'll come to that, Lord willing, next time we're here in Genesis next week even. So let's consider Genesis 10 this morning, and I will begin by reading. You recall that the theme of the seed, the seed of the woman who would eventually crush the head of the serpent, the anointed seed, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what Genesis is unfolding for us at central base. Genesis 10 now gives us this sketch of humanity after the flood. This is God's holy word. Please hear as I read, starting at verse 1, reading the whole chapter. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphtha, Togermah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, Dodadim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush. Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush, father Nimrod, he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akid, and Kalna, the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahibim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kalsuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kafarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, the firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. 
the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Elmadad, Sheleph, Hazarmavath, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dekla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Job, Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we are once again induced to a high esteem for your word as we read this very carefully crafted portion of Genesis. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please give us eyes to see and hearts to apply what is here revealed. We see your careful record-keeping and record-giving for the purpose of demonstrating your faithful promise-keeping. We also see the origins of the people of earth and ask you to give us hearts for the nations, that all peoples on this planet might know Christ and worship you. I lift this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. Just a quick pointer. If you ever get an opportunity to read scripture and you come across names, read them fast like you know how to say them, and then no one will ask whether you really know how to say them or not. You know, we should expect when we read Holy Scripture, whatever portion it may be, even a genealogical listing, that it would have rich, rich content for us to mine and grow by. In Genesis 10 is definitely no exception. It prompts us on many levels. This is called by the scholars the great table of nations, Genesis 10. Now before we dig into Genesis 10, and I try to point you to some takeaways or some things that you might say are upshots of what's revealed here. I want us to consider the words of Jesus because it will remind us of what's happening here as the nations are basically planted, replanted after the flood, if you will, and things start to multiply. And we have the fields that eventually will be the harvest that we are observing as the harvest now we'll see them being planted in Genesis 10. This will give us a big picture appreciation for even some of how we would apply what we learn here. Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, after he's finished the work that he has been given to do on the cross, the seed had come and crushed the head of the serpent. Listen to what it says and what he says in Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Genesis 10 is the beginning of the nations, the nations that Jesus tells us to go and disciple. Genesis 10 and then into 11 makes a bridge into the life of Abraham, where it goes from what was before in these foundations and generations to the patriarchs, focusing on where the seed will come from directly and the promises of God. 
and 12 to 50 of Genesis. The seed will come through Abraham. So there's going to be a narrowing of focus in Genesis. But we should not forget this table of nations because it provides the backdrop for the rest of what God will do in redemption, especially after Jesus comes, especially in our times. You know, when he called Abraham out, we shouldn't forget what part of the Abrahamic promise was. He says, God that is, to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, Abraham, all the families of earth shall be blessed. It's always been in the big picture view of God's unfolding redemption for all members of all nations to know him and to come to him. This is what he's doing the work concerning in this harvest. The nations get their new beginning here in the passage that we have before us. The table of nations. This becomes the context or the backdrop for what unfolds in Scripture and unfolds in time and space. God's plan for redemption. And we, the church, are called to participate. As I mentioned, there's several upshots to the text. I listed four of them on your insert. Let's walk through these and consider how the passage points us to these things. The first thing I want you to notice after reading a long chapter like this that's a bit unusual. We've read genealogies before in Genesis. This is even more thorough. We see the three sons of Noah in the breakdown of the various people that came from them. Again, not exhaustive, but the important players for what will come next and what will unfold in the rest of Scripture. So the first thing I would hope for us to recognize when we read God's Word, we could see it's God's Word. This is a a wonderfully crafted portion, the Holy Spirit working through Moses to take what was given for many centuries and then deliver it here in inscripturated form. The reliability of the scriptures is on full display with the quality of this chapter and of course all of it, but especially we see it here. Moses is writing in 1440 or so BC. He's writing of events that happened many, many centuries before. And it's well-preserved coming up to the time of Moses when he then puts it to paper. So much better than what you would see in its time. There were other civilizations that wrote genealogies, and they're considered accurate. No one doubts them. But they're not nearly the quality that we see here. James Boyce said it well. Even the most hostile critics of the Bible and its accuracy are inclined to acknowledge this table of nations' extraordinary importance and accuracy. You may be familiar with William Albright. He was once an enemy of God and God's word, but as he tried to disprove the Bible, he became a believer. And Albright wrote some time ago, the 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. Albright says, the table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. The equality of this account should give every believer here great assurance of the Bible that we have in our hands. Every believer of Christ and his word should be boosted in their confidence when they read any portion of scripture. But there's something about this, this carefulness that we see here, this precision that we see here that makes us know of its trustworthiness. The table of nations shows the interrelationships and the geographical distribution of the, uh, the different people throughout the ancient Near East and then far beyond, divided into three main sections, the three sons of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, in, in that order so that we can see that Shem is who will be focused on after, but Japheth is important for the bigger picture of God, as is Ham in his progeny. 
We have a bridge here between prehistory, that is the time before the flood, and then the historical times of Abraham and his descendants. No, Genesis 10 on its face value may not be as exciting as other portions that we've just come through or other portions of Scripture, but the scholarly quality manifests the divine origin of Scripture once again, and it should give us great, great confidence. It's a moving testimony that we are reading something divine, not just this passage, but of course the whole of it. Those who penned the Westminster Confession did a great job describing, you know, when you pick up the Bible, you know you're reading something from God, especially when you think of all the other things you may have read. The confession writer said it well, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to in high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. And the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, and this is the line I love the most, and it applies here. It does abundantly evidence evidence itself to be the word of God. I don't want to go further with Genesis 10 before we pause and appreciate that we have before us in your lap the word of God. You have it at your disposal. This is from heaven. It's changeless in a time that's ever-changing. The world around us changes and changes and changes again. One day, scientific consensus is this. The next day, it's that. Always changing. Politicians promise something bluntly on the campaign trail and then ignore that pledge immediately when they get into office. Judges will make a ruling in one era and it's shown to be different in the next or deficient in the next. Human experts will give their sure postulations only to be corrected usually soon thereafter. Culture will demand. We'll demand you and I to believe and promote things through the lens of popular opinion only to leave people in terrible pain and anguish and keep trying to explain it away, sometimes even to the destruction of people. Now, in these days, with the power of the internet and social networks, these so-called scientists, these political hacks, these arrogant judges and God-mocking talking heads can twist the thinking of millions at rapid speed. But this book here that we have, this can be followed and relied upon. You have God's changeless word in an ever-changing world. This culture is utterly confused, but you have, we have the word of God. In just Genesis 10, read it, and you can tell the heavenliness of the matter. The grass withers, the flowers fade, people come and go, so do their ideas. But the word of God stands forever. That's the first takeaway I want us to recognize, having read through in its whole Genesis 10. Now there's a second takeaway or upshot from this passage. Actually, there's three in one, but we'll see them quickly, and they're there on the outline. We will see about humanity something that helps us go forward in our anthropology, understanding how the Bible unfolds, who we're dealing with. The flood didn't wash sin away. It just gave a new beginning. We have here manifested the unity of mankind once again. We also see the diversity starting to develop here in a way we hadn't seen before. And we're also reminded that depravity is still there in humankind. Unity, diversity, and depravity. First, notice the humanity that comes, or excuse me, the unity that comes now from this episode. Every human being is a member of the human race. The only differentiation at this point is male and female. That's what human beings are, this race of people, men and women. Now, despite physically dividing and spreading out, All human beings are still created in God's image, in the human race. There's this unity that goes on that is not changed from this time of the flood onward. The sons of Noah, they occupied different places on the earth, 
all though are created in the image of God. So the Asians and the Indians to the east are created in God's image. The Persians and the Arabs closer to Israel created in God's image. The Europeans and the Africans all created in God's image. We have an essential unity. No human being superior to the other ontologically at their base, at their essence, all created in the image of God. We have this unity with every human being on the planet. No division. The divisions that we do start to notice, they're not even the divisions that we make up in popular times. The divisions that God lays out here is by their languages, by their clans, and by their nations. Their languages, the words they speak, that's initial, and that also flows from what we see in the next chapter with Babel. The initial fellowship or community or community they have with others is because they speak the same language. Clans, they're related most likely, at least early on, by family. And the nations, they start to take on forms. That's how God recognizes these people groups by this. Not the usual ways, by our skin tone or our, the way our eyes are shaped or the way our hair is textured, the ways that we draw up now. These aren't ways that God delineates. It's through the languages and the clans and the nations. And we see this early on here flowing from this. So we're uni- we see the unity continuing in humankind created in the image of God. But we also see something else. Uh, we see that they are still in need of the seed to come because they're in sin. So the sin nature inherited from Adam works through Noah and works through still the sons of Noah. Shem will bear the Messiah, but Shem needs salvation just like Japheth and just like Ham. Verse 32 kind of summarizes the unity of humanity at this point. Verse 32 says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their generations and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So they come forth, creating the image of God with the sin problem. And that's important because that's the truth. That's really the fundamental bottom line for humanity. And we should believe and remember that we are all creating the image of God and all of us have a sin problem. Most of the discussion that you have that brings up the diversity issues are often a tool of the evil one to keep us from focusing on what's true about us all and unifies us all, created in God's image with a sin problem needing fixing that only Christ can provide. I want you to notice, secondly, not only the unity, but also the diversity of humankind. And this will start to unfold even more as we get into chapter 11. We'll understand it a little bit better, I think. But for now, you'll notice Japheth, Ham, and Shem, uh, these three sons of Noah, and they have their families, and their families go to various different parts of the world at that time. Japheth, their people spread in their lands, each in their own language, clans, and nations. The same thing said about Ham, same thing about Shem, or the Shemites, or the Semites, as we might know of it. Let's look at how each of these descendants disperse upon the earth, just briefly. We'll visit this again just a bit next time we come to chapter 11. Japheth, it's interesting to note, Only a few verses given to Japheth's descendants. This is how we know it's not exhaustive. These are some important figures that will appear again in the biblical text, many of them anyways. Japheth, by the way, is probably where most of us had descended. Unless you have African descent, you probably come from Japheth in some fashion. The the Indo-European people from India and to Asia all the way to Europe. Think of where this all started in modern Iraq Babel, north, east, and west, across, this is the sons and daughters of Japheth. 
the coastland peoples. It says in verse 5, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands. Coast to coast is what is meant here. So this is a huge swath of people, a huge number of people that come from Japheth. The Indo-Germanic people often referred to, the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks, from Europe to Asia to the Far East. Just a few verses designated, but this is a massive swath of people. Remember, Noah said about Japheth, may God enlarge Japheth. And God did. Japheth was huge as it relates to the amount of people involved in his descendants. Then you come to Ham, and there's a lot said about Ham. Now, part of the reason for this is because Canaan, Ham's son, you remember in Noah's words, they would become pivotal for Israel. They would become rivals with Israel, to put it very, very understatedly, because they'll occupy the promised land. But you see that the people who went to Africa, this is from Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, verse 6. They, re- they migrated west from Iraq, modern Iraq, and down into Africa, the Cushites and their kingdoms there. Then also, verse 15, we have singled out Canaan because of his particular, uh, how he fits in a strategic place in the Old Testament. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn Heth. The territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza. You recognize these, these land designations, no doubt. Modern-day Palestine, Israel. The direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and so forth. These were the sons of Ham, their clans, languages, lands, and nations. So after Babel, the descendants of Ham moved south and westward. The Canaanites largely settled in Palestine. They would be there when Israel was about to, when the Israel came out of Egypt, was about to occupy the promised land. In fact, the time Moses is writing Genesis, this is looming, that they're going to be called to go in and take the promised land from the Canaanites. Of course, cursed be Canaan is what Noah said about the Canaanites because of what they would, the wrath they would endure from Israel when Israel came to take that land. Finally, you notice in the text you have Shem. Shem, verse 21 down to 31. These are the people that will eventually occupy the Middle East. The Hebrews were from Shem, as were the Arabs. We see the division in the family of Abraham. Semi comes from Shem. The H was dropped because there wasn't a word for that when the Greek and Latin versions of the Bible were copied. So that's where you get Semite, the language, the Semitic languages. Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, to name just a few. Jewish people were eventually Middle Eastern, uh, were all, and the eventual Middle Eastern Muslim people actually all related through Shem and Abraham, as you know the Old Testament episode with Abraham and his children. And notice that Israel is not mentioned in the table of nations here yet. Interesting as it is, it's forming when Moses is writing it. When God called Abraham, think about Abraham for a moment, because we think of the Jewish people, we think of in modern terms of how we talk about race and ethnicity, but listen to the, the, the complete uh, mixture of the various peoples that made up Abraham. When God first called Abraham, he's living in the Ur of the Chaldeans. That's an Amorite region of Mesopotamia. So at the dawning of the Israelite nation, the descendants of Abraham are a mix of Western Mesopotamian, Canaanite, and Egyptian elements. It's during the 400 years in their sojourn in Egypt in captivity where Abraham and the people of Israel develop linguistically and culturally into an identifiable Israeli people. It's because they're isolated genetically even, and they come out with this certain, uh, this certain, these certain characteristics of them. So we see 
the unity and the diversity, I want you to see finally, at least in this, for this point, the depravity does not let up. It shows itself at every stage of human history, and it's certainly so here. You'll notice there's a bit, in the middle of a genealogy, there's a mention of Nimrod, who is the leader of Babel. Terrible name, by the way. There's a lot of good biblical names that you can name your children. Nimrod is not one of them. Let's just say that for sure. Go for Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz would be, we need an Ashkenaz. Alice Felicity is really pretty. Ashkenaz, though, we can go with that. So anyone thinking of names, I would love to baptize an Ashkenaz at some point. Nimrod, however, let's not. Cush father Nimrod, it says in verse 8. And Nimrod becomes the real, well, he's not the first tyrant because we met Lamech back earlier before the flood. But you can see that every era, tyrants are not new to modern times. They come throughout, anytime there's a person fallen, that person, if given the chance and has power, they'll take that power and crush other people with that power. And that's what you have in the person of Nimrod. It says, therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So God says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then people were saying, as a colloquial saying, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This doesn't mean a hunter of big game. This is someone who is a hunter of people. He was someone who was a dominator. And this is the beginning of his kingdom, Babel. That will inform us for chapter 11. So hold that thought. So Nimrod, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Eric, Akid, Kelna, and the land of Shinar. He founded many civilizations. And here he is, this tyrant who was standing in opposition to God. He was standing in arrogance against God. And God defines him this way in the middle of a genealogy. So we find it to be very important and a reminder that depravity is alive and well on the earth. Transmitted from Adam, humankind still bears the stain of corruption. And we see it even there. Genesis 10 reveals unity, diversity, and depravity. All features of mankind after the flood and still going forward. Now, it's easy to become confused by all the modern debate about race and race relations and animosity that's stirred up because of it. But here we are reminded that there's really one race and we are all in need because of a massive unified problem of sin. I want you to notice a third upshot from this passage. This is the shortest of the four that I want to note, but one that will recur and of course recurs here again. The table of nations ends with Shem and gives a detailed listing of Shem's descendants. It will be even more detailed in chapter 11, we'll see, because Shem is the line of the promised seed, the Messiah. He's important for this reason. And this passage is working towards presenting Shem to us. It's about foundations and generations, what we've read so far in Genesis. It's providing for us an explanation of who God is, who man is, what man's problem is, and the redemption that God will provide through the seed. Shem is the one that God will use to bring forth eventually Abraham and eventually Christ. This is where the seed will come from. The other nations matter. We'll see that. We'll come back to them. And they'll come back into play when the seed himself comes. But for the next thousand years of recorded biblical history, we'll see the particular focus of God in developing Israel for the purpose of bringing Messiah, as well as for the purpose of revealing so much more about himself to everyone. When Jesus is described in his lineage in the Gospel of Luke, listen to what Luke said. Jesus was the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber. By the way, Eber is where we get Hebrews, 
that's where that's from. The son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Archaxad, and the son of Shem, who's the son of Noah. So it's important to see how Jesus comes from the line of Shem. So Genesis 10 gives us a segue into the story of Israel, the promised Messiah. There will be interludes with other nations that we'll have seen listed here, but they'll be seen through the lens of what's happening with Israel. That's how the Bible unfolds in the Old Testament from this point. The seed, a running theme through the Old Testament, introducing Jesus. Foundations and generations will give way to patriarchs and promises, as we'll see in the remaining chapters after chapter 12. Now finally, I want to provide one more takeaway from this passage that I hope gives us uh, a sense of our commissioning from Christ and how it fits into what the Bible has revealed. We see that God's view of the nations helps the church understand our commission. I began by beginning with the words of Jesus as we know the Great Commission. The Old Testament is essentially primarily about the coming of the seed, the Messiah. The New Testament is the testimony that the seed had come and finished his work and then opened the way once again for redemption to the nations. What nations? The ones who were planted in Genesis 10 now are ready for harvest after Christ the seed has come. That's how it has unfolded. It's a glorious unfolding of God's redemption. The New Testament dials in and God's focus on reaching the nations to come and be subdued to Christ, to be under his dominion. It's interesting, when the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel, he was speaking to a group of Greeks who didn't have the Jewish background. And so as he presents Christ, listen to part of what he says to these who would largely be, if they're a Greek audience, sons of Japheth, if you want to trace it back that far. Gentiles. In Acts 17, Paul said, he made from one man every nation of mankind. He wants to bring us back to that unity of humanity. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, he tells to the Greeks. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He reminds them of their unity as humanity, that God's over all of them, and then he draws them into the testimony about what Jesus did to be their representative. And they could believe on him, preaching to the Gentiles now, starting to draw in the nations once again who were planted in Genesis 10. Now, before we leave today, Genesis 10, I want to conclude with a bit of a quick trek through how the Old Testament then unfolds the picture that God has for the nations. Even though the Old Testament is focused on what God does through Israel, it's never far from the mind and heart of God or the word of God that he promised Abraham to make him a blessing to the nations. That was part of the promise to Abraham. So that's 2000, 2100 BC when he says this to Abraham. I will make you a blessing to the nations. Well, we know a lot happened in those 2000 years before the time of Christ. A thousand years later, King David, the warrior king, remember the one who had to subdue the Canaanites and the Philistines and people we read about in here. You'd think he's not going to like any of these nations for God. But listen to what, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David, the prophet says in 1 Chronicles 16, when the ark is brought in to Jerusalem. David said, sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, David says. 
He's not focused on just Israel. He knows what the end goal is for God, to bring the nations who have been idol worshipers, estranged from God, to bring them members of those nations to himself as his people, the true Israel of God. When he pens Psalm 2, listen to what David writes. And this is 1000 BC now. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 is a prophecy of God the Father speaking to God the Son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. God the Father says God to the Son. I will make the nations, the nation, not just the Jews. I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Later in Psalm 67, King David says again, that your way may be known on the earth, that your saving power among, is known among all the nations. 300 years after we have Isaiah's prophecy. I mean, 300 years, just, I say that so quickly, but 300 years, I mean, that's a long, long time. That's as long as our nation's been around, right? 300 years, longer still. Isaiah says, I have put my spirit upon my servant. The servant is the Messiah. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42, verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Remember the coastlands in Japheth? Isaiah 43. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That's the prophecy of Isaiah in 700 B.C. for the nations. Isaiah 43, 8 and 9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. Micah, same time Isaiah is writing, the prophet Micah. That prophet said, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The nations come unto God. Habakkuk, 50 years after Isaiah and Micah, 650 BC. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In 600, just 50 years after Habakkuk, 600 BC, Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the, chiefs of the, nation, the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Do you see the heart of God for the nations, for the fullness of salvation, that he plans to draw people from every corner of the globe to himself and to Christ? Even the Old Testament has this wide view of what God will do. Haggai, in 525 BC, said, I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah, in 510 BC, Behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Zechariah said later in his prophecy, and the Lord will be king over the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, 450 B.C., for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says God. And in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It's the constant forecast of the Old Testament prophets that God's work won't be relegated to just Israel, from whom the seed is coming, and we need. 
But the end goal is to draw people from all nations, all tribes, and all tongues to Christ for God's glory. This is why it gives us new lenses to see the commission that we have from our Savior. Jesus says, to you, to me, to us, go therefore and make disciples of the nations. The nations are planted in Genesis 10. Now they're ripe for the harvest. That's what Jesus says. John, the apostle in Revelation, written 70 to 100 AD, whatever you may decide, he gives a prophetic vision of God's work to gather his people from all the nations. In Revelation 5, by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes of the peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches in their hands. Genesis 10 is the planting of the harvest that we see reaped by God after Christ gives his commission even unto this day. We are to be God's harvesters of this great harvest. Our Lord Jesus said to his disciples, and by extension to us, look up, look up, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What's growing? The seeds that were planted in Genesis chapter 10. What a great harvest of nations that God is doing and complete. And when he completes that harvest, he will come again. For closing prayer for the sermon, I would ask you to turn in your hymnals to page 808. We will recite together, again as our closing prayer, Psalm 67. This is David's psalm about God's plan for the nations. 808. It's on the bottom of the page, left-hand side. It starts there. I'll read the regular face print. You respond with the bold face print. This is our responsive prayer to what we have just read. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. For you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. Then the land will yield its harvest and God, our God, will bless us. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnal to respond, 713. We'll stand together and sing the first four verses as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table. Great King of Nations,